John, uh, who writer of the gospel here in John 13, a lot of theologians say that, that his other letters, John 1, 2, 3, that that's sort of like a commentary on the gospel of John, and I agree. And it's really interesting to kind of see it that way, how he explains the gospel of John through these letters. But you know what's interesting is there's a context of Ephesus even in, in the gospel of John. Most likely, he wrote it from Ephesus. It's pretty interesting. And most likely, he writes his letters to the churches in Ephesus. What he says in 1 John 3 is, if we know God and we really do have a faith, then we will be a people who love. Right? It's like proof of your, of your life in Christ will be how you love. And in your obedience. If you're obedient to Christ and you love people, it shows that you're a part of his family. If you're not obedient to Christ and you don't love people, it shows that you don't belong to his family. It's so important that we be a people of faith and love. Then Paul says uh, that he's prayerful. Look with me, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So a couple of things. Paul remembers the people he's writing to. He was in Ephesus longer than any other place on his missionary journeys, three years. He's gone deep with them in discipleship. Remember, he was with them in the synagogue and then the hall of Tyrannus. And, and he said from door to door. I mean, he's been all over the city. He was in the, the theater, uh, the amphitheater. I mean, he's, people, people know him. And so when he writes, he says, I remember you in my prayers. He's not only remembering to pray for them, but he's truly remembering specific people. So he, he says he has this ongoing, I do not cease, conversation with God. Do you have that? Sometimes, and it's good if you say, you know, at, at 10 o'clock or at 8 a.m., I get up and I talk to God, and that's, that's awesome, great. But also talk to God along your day. There's often times where I'd be praying, and I have to come back and go, okay, God, now where were we? <laughs> really? I come back and go, okay, we were talking about, okay, I was telling you about this. Lord, I need to lay this down, or I need to pray for this. Just keep an ongoing conversation with God. That's what Paul says he has, and as he has it, he remembers the people that have been a part of his ministry over the years. One of the sweetest memories, I think, in, I think Lori would agree with me, in our ministry, 32 years of churches around the country, around the South especially, memories of people that we love dearly. I see faces. I had a friend this morning text me out of nowhere. I hadn't got a text from him. I can't tell you when. Got a text from a friend this morning from a church in Nashville from a, that we were dear friends with. He said, man, you're on my heart. I just want you to know I love you and I miss you. I, I love that. Some of the sweetest memories are people we've served and, and, and even the people we've served with. I started to say I'm thankful for some of those too. <laughs> but I'm actually thankful for all of them, right? Even the ones that have wounded me. Even the ones that, that I'm not best friends with today. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for how God uses the wounds in my life as much as the blessings. Uh, so Paul's remembering this three-year relationship. You might remember Acts 20, we get this little picture of uh, Paul and the elders of Ephesus. They meet in Miletus, and the Bible says that they come together, they weep, they hug each other, they kiss one another, they're so close, because Paul says, you're never going to see me again. And so they're just, they're so authentic and, and real in their relationship and it's from that context that Paul is writing this letter to those friends and people that he loves so dearly so he's he's praying for them he's he's letting them uh taking them before the Lord and what does he want the Lord to know 
this is what we need to hear this morning, okay? Because this is what I'm praying for you. This is what we need to be and what we need to understand. So lock your mind in right now and focus for a moment. Ephesians 1.16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul is thankful for the people from what he's heard of them, their faith, their love. And now he wants to pray for them. And pray not that they're just doing okay, not, not for you know, so-and-so's ankle, which is a good thing to pray for. But he's praying for depth of relationship with Jesus. And he gives these three descriptors. He's saying, I want you to know God more. You know, to know something is more than to have information. A lot of times we think, I really need to know about that. Let me study. Let me get cognitive uh, filling of my brain. Let me, let me know more. You know, I, for 22 years, I thought I really knew the New Testament. I knew the Bible. I thought I knew the stories of Jesus until I went to the Holy Land. Until I'm standing on the Temple Mount, right, where, where, where Jesus is rushing people out of the temple with whips, where the disciples are preaching, all these things that have happened in the very place that I was standing. I thought I understood the New Testament until I walked on the roads of Jerusalem where Jesus dragged his cross, standing in what they think is the upper room where believers prayed and received the Holy Spirit. I mean, standing on a boat in the Sea of Galilee that Jesus walked on, looking at the same topography that he saw, it helped me understand the Bible in a very visual, colorful way. It was like people say, once you go to the Holy Land, it's like reading Scripture in color. And it is. I have specific places in my mind. When I, you talk about the, the pools of Bethesda, I've been to those pools. There's just these, this, this knowledge that I have now that I treasure because I have more experience. Paul is asking the Lord to give this kind of experience to the people of Ephesus, that they would know Christ, that they would know him more. It's not enough just to know about God. Do you hear me this morning? It's not enough to have some facts, some information. We have to know him in every aspect of our lives. We need to experience God in, in everything, in our marriages, in our work, with our children, in our pain. We need to experience God. That's why Paul even said, Lord, I want to know you in your suffering." I want to know you so much. I want to suffer as you suffered so that I can know you more. We have to know the Lord. Jesus said this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing him. Knowing him. So Paul says that he prays for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him for the people in Ephesus. Well, I want you to know he's not praying that the Lord sends some other spirit. 
There is one Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And it is the Holy Spirit that Paul is referencing here. That the Holy Spirit, now first of all, this is kind of interesting. As soon as he mentions the Holy Spirit, this becomes a, a, a prayer that involves the Trinity. Just in the same way last week, the praise was a praise that involved triune activity of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now in this prayer, we see the Father of glory, Spirit of wisdom about the Son of God. So again, more triune activity of God. He says that they would have a spirit of wisdom. Did you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is, yes, it involves information, but it's taking that information and letting it affect our lives. Letting it help us to have good judgment based on the information we have. My wonderful and beautiful daughter who turned 15 last week, Daisy Joy, she loves when I tell stories about her. In fact, my, they got me a, a, a Christmas mug this year that says, what does it say? Something like, be careful what you say or you'll end up in a sermon. So that's a coffee mug that I have. And so, the story is, she just turned 15 last week. We're beginning to talk about driving, right? Learning the, all the driving stuff, the books, the, the stuff online. And I told her, you begin to learn. You begin to get online and learn the stuff you need to learn, and we'll start practice driving. But until you start to learn, I'm not going to teach you how to drive. That's, I can't want it more than you. Right? So, but here's the thing. Daisy could know every single thing there is to know about driving. She could know every fact. She could make a hundred, and I expect her to, on the test online. And then she gets behind the wheel of a car and go, ah, right? She's got to take what she knows about learning and then begin to use wisdom with that information as she drives 70 miles down the road, 65 miles down the road. 55 miles, 30, yeah. She has to use wisdom. Do you see where I'm going? How, how long have we come to church and got so much information and then we walk out of here and we don't live our lives with wisdom? That's the, that's the purpose. That we learn of Christ, that we live in Christ and then we go live this life with biblical, godly wisdom. So Paul says, God, give them a spirit of wisdom. Not just that they know information, but they live with wisdom. Biblical wisdom. And give them a spirit of revelation. Help them to see, open their eyes. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. God, give them a spirit of wisdom a spirit of revelation, help them to open the eyes of their hearts to see what it means to know you. I love the story of Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. It's such a cool story. Luke 24, if you want to look at it later. So Jesus ha has died on the cross. The city is in turmoil. Uh, I mean, a few days later they had celebrated him. I mean, a few days before they had celebrated him uh, coming down from Bethany. We call it Palm Sunday. And then they crucified him. And Jesus has not revealed himself to that many people. He comes alongside two of his disciples that are people that are following him. These are not disciples you would probably know names of. But he comes up along these two guys and they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus is kind of like, hey, what's, what's going on? <laughs> I love this story. And they're like, you haven't heard what happened to Jesus? Tell me about it, you know. So they begin to share and, and all this stuff, and clearly they aren't completely fully understanding his purpose, uh, all, the, all the aspects of who Jesus is. So the Bible says he begins to open their, their hearts and their minds 
to understand the scriptures about him. They don't know it's Jesus until they get to their destination and stop to eat. Luke 24, 31 says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus had to open their eyes. And what's cool about the story is in the moment that they recognize him, Jesus disappears. And they say, when we were walking on the road, didn't our hearts burn when he was speaking to us? We knew something. But as soon as Jesus speaks and he blesses this food and breaks this bread, they recognize him, Jesus disappears. Friends, the point I want you to see is that it takes God to open our eyes. It takes God to help us see. That's why Paul is not saying, hey, Ephesians, open your eyes. He's saying, Lord, please open the Ephesians' eyes. Enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they see and know you more. What's interesting about um, the book of Ephesians is that you kind of have to study Ephesians along with these three other prison letters. Paul, and he's, I told you this a while back, he's in Rome under house arrest. He's written four letters, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. And so what's cool about when you study these books, you ought to really study the four of them together. Because there's similar themes throughout these books. Have you ever sat down and write, Miss Sue is the best thank you note and birthday card writer in the whole world. I love you, Miss Sue. But I don't know if you do this, Miss Sue, but sometimes when I'm writing a bunch of thank you notes, I start saying similar phrases to certain people. Like, I hope they never get together and see that I said the same two sentences to them. You know, and I think Paul is writing similar information to these different communities because he wants them all to know Christ. Look here, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, and so from the day we heard, that sounds familiar, we have not ceased to pray for you, that sounds familiar, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what's cool about reading this in Colossians is we get a little bit deeper, maybe, of what Paul intends for this knowledge to do in our lives. Keep reading. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So why is Paul praying for the Ephesians to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Right? So that they have true understanding of who Jesus is. So that they have fruit. And then in doing those things, they get more knowledge, more and more knowledge of who Jesus is. So Paul says, he gives three specific things. He says, Father, give them a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and, and enlighten the eyes of their heart. In the ancient world, when he's speaking of the eyes of their heart, he's speaking of the very emotional, volitional center of all that you are. Everything you believe, everything you understand, the things that motivate you. So he's saying at the center of your life, I hope you understand and know Christ. That's what he's saying. At the very center of who you are, help them to truly know, not just cognitively, but deeply in their hearts, in their souls. And he says these three things. He says that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. He says that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
and that you would know his, uh, what is his immeasurable power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Lord, open the eyes of their hearts to understand, to deeply know what is the hope to which we've been called. What's he talking about? What is the hope to which we've been called? Let's look at some of Paul's other writings, see if we can get a clue. Romans 5, 2 says this. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What's he talking about here? Look with me again. We have, we have obtained access by faith into this grace. What's he speaking of? Salvation, right? This is the access we have in, in, by God's grace alone. Through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Look at Galatians 5.5. 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What's he talking about? That by faith, we believe that Christ is the only one righteous. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that there's no one righteous. We're not righteous. How much righteousness do you have? Zip. Nothing. Nada. And so here Paul's saying to the Galatians, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for Christ, right, to take our sinfulness. When we're saved, our sinfulness and give us his righteousness, that great exchange. The hope that we have of that righteousness is salvation. Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Friends, the hope of the calling to, to which you're called, that hope is the gospel of Jesus. Do you understand it? Do you fully know it? That we are hopeless, that we're sinful people, that we, we have nothing to bring to God, and God demands perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. And so he sends his one and only son to this earth to live a perfect, righteous, holy life and to die on a sinner's cross in your place, in my place, so that when we believe in him and that work that he's done on the cross, we can have a hope of righteousness. We can have a hope of eternal glory and eternal life. That is the gospel of Jesus. Do we fully understand it? Do we live in it? That's what Paul's praying for. Lord, help them to know the gospel. That is the hope to which we've been called. Also, he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Last week, we talked about these riches. He calls them blessings. Every spiritual blessing. And we have every one. We don't have just a few. We have every one. Nothing withheld from us as believers in Jesus. But it's not just understanding our blessings. It's helping each other understand our blessings. Look what it says. To know what the riches of his glorious inheritance are in the saints. In the saints, that, that's us. That's the church, that's the body of Christ. It's this joy of experiencing the blessings together. It's not just knowing them, it's walking in them together. It's having this joy of life together. Can I just tell you something? And I tell you every, about every Sunday because I really want us to know it and understand it. We, we don't have to live this life alone. In fact, if you're a Christian, you can't. 
If you know Jesus as your Savior and you are not connected to a body of Christ, you are outside the will of God. It is never his intent for you to live as a believer outside of a faith community or a faith family. It's not his will. His will is for believers is for us to do this life together. For me to say to you, I need your help. And by the way, I need your help. <laughs> I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I need you to remind me of the gospel. I need you to remind me of the blessings that God has given me, and you need to be reminded too. And so we're going to be intentional as believers in Jesus. And we're going to say, you know what? Once a week I'm going to go to somebody's house and I'm going to remind those people of who they are in Jesus. It's called city groups. You know, once a week I'm going to meet with a couple of, a couple of guys and I'm going to share my brokenness and my questions and my struggles. It's called a triad. And I want to try and remind those guys of who they are in Jesus and they're going to remind me of who he is to me. And we're going to come together and celebrate and worship our great God. Not a lot of time in the week. It's not a lot of commitment for us. But we need one another. We need to be committed to one another. That's why we are a covenantal community. It's deeper than just going, yeah, I'd like to hang out some on Sunday. No. Yeah, I'd like to go hear a guy speak. Yeah, I'd like to hear some music. No, I want you to see that God wants us to be serious about a covenant together. I covenant to you to walk life with you imperfectly because I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. But I want to do my best to lead you to Jesus and will you lead me to him as well. That's what it means to be a body of Christ, to, to understand and walk in the blessings, the inheritance in all the saints, to be on mission together. Then he says that they would know what is his immeasurable power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. You know, uh, I talk a lot about the gospel. I talk a lot about the body of Christ, but I don't talk a lot about the power of God. I don't know why. I was thinking through this this week going, in a lot of years of ministry and growing up in the church, I've not heard a lot of messages on the power of God. Why not? And can I tell you something? If there's one thing the Ephesian believers needed to hear is that you can stand in the face of utter death. You can have hope in the middle of a godless society. In fact, you can even die for Christ if that's what happens in your life. God will give you the power to trust him, to know him, to experience him, to have faith in him. So they needed to hear this, and guess what? We need to hear it as well, this power of Christ. Paul uses, and I think this is just so interesting, we're going to go in this direction for a moment here. So Paul uses every synonym he can think of. I mean, there's no way to look at this verse, especially verse 19 I'm talking about, and not see that Paul's trying to say something here. Can we get it? Look with me, I'm going to count them for you. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Six different descriptors of God's power. So interesting. I just started looking in the Greek. What do these words mean? Because you could say they all mean power. But no, there, there's little nuances. Immeasurable. Some of your Bibles may say surpassing. That word means to overthrow or to excel. Greatness, megathos. It means overwhelmingly huge or big. So to, ex, 
to excel in some huge way. The word for power is where we get the word dynamite. Have you ever felt the shock wave of an explosion? Just and you go, oh God, you know that. You just sense that there was power in that. This is what Paul's trying to communicate. You hearing him? Power, dynamite, working. This is the Greek word energy. It means energy. It's where we get the word energy. Have you ever been under a, a power plant? Maybe some of you live pretty close to a power plant, and you can just walk by, and you hear, you hear that, like, oh, gosh. You kind of walk away or the other side of the street because you know there's something powerful there. You, don't mess with that. That is scary sounding because there's power there. This is what Paul's saying is working toward you. You have this access to this power. Then he says great, which means to conquer, and might, which means physical force. Paul's using every, every little descriptor he can for us to understand that we have the access to a powerful God. And we don't access it. I sat in my office this week and, I, and I, in tears I said, why don't I access this power more? We wonder why we can't get over addictions. We wonder why we still have the same tapes playing in our minds. We wonder why we just can't get, move forward in our marriages or in our finances. And we're not accessing the power of God. And what Paul says is, this is the power of God working toward you. That also means for you or among you. This is the power we have that God is putting in our direction. We have access to this incredible power, but I'm afraid we don't access it. I heard a, a really tragic story this week of a little town called Itasca, Texas. Uh, in the war, in World War II, there was a great fire in this little town. And it was, happened in a school and it killed 263 children. Can you imagine in a small community, a school that goes up in flames and kills 263 children, how devastating to every person in that community that would be in the middle of a war. So they didn't rebuild the school during the war. They were just defeated, mourning, sad. But when the war was over, there began to be a little hope and vision. And they said, let's rebuild the school and let's not only rebuild the school to be an amazing school, let's put the greatest, the best sprinkler system that has ever been in a building before. And that's what they did. I mean, it was the envy of, of states around to come see this design of this sprinkler system. And the crazy thing is, in the sprinkler system, the town began to grow, the school, more kids. They decided they needed a bigger school. So they start tearing down part of that new construction so they can add on, and they discover that the fancy sprinkler system had never been connected to a water source. They thought they had all this stuff. Thank God they never needed it because it wouldn't have helped them at all. Friends, how many of you say you know Jesus and you never access the power of God? You never understand it. You don't know how it would help you. I'm afraid to even ask. What does it mean? But Paul goes overboard to help us understand it. This is the power we have in Christ. May we hook up to it. May we get it. May we know it intimately. Lastly, Jesus is all-powerful. 
Paul's thankful, he's prayerful, but Jesus is all-powerful. So Paul starts talking about this power that we have in Christ, um, and then it sends him on, uh, I'm going to use a musical term, sends him on a crescendo. Now, I, I love music. I love, I, and the thing that makes music great is, a, is another musical word that we use. It's called dynamics. So if I were to sing a song or a, a wonderful singer would sing some song very softly, almost like a breath, you just pulls you in. Oh, what they say, it's so intimate. And it's, it's touching. And then it grows. And it gets bigger. And they just begin to sing out. And it's majestic. And it's, that's what Paul is doing in this prayer. He goes from whispering about being thankful. And he goes to shouting about God's greatness. Look at it with me. Ephesians 1.19. In the crescendo of this prayer, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Those six descriptors of power. And then he starts up. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Hallelujah. So what is, what is Paul doing here? He's trying to help us understand not only do we have these six descriptors to help us understand we can access the power of God. But where does that power come from? Right? Well, what gives us that power? This is Jesus. This is an explanation of Jesus' power and authority. I'll say this very quickly. God displayed his power, number one, in raising Christ from the dead. And Paul says, the same power you have is the same power used to raise Christ from the dead. It's the same power that he worked in Christ to raise him from the dead. You have resurrection power, Christian. It's the last time you tapped into that. When's the last temptation you walked through and you went, wait, wait, wait. There's not, not a temptation that I, that I face that God has not given me a way out. I'm going to tap into the power of the resurrected Jesus. When's the last time you realized that your marriage is burning down and tapped into the resurrection power of Jesus? But if you're not connected, you don't have that power. He says there's power in him because not only did he raise him from the dead, he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is what he's talking about here. He, he raised him from the dead, and then literally, remember, uh, after Jesus gives the great commission, Jesus just rises off the ground. The, the text says that the disciples are watching him. <laughs> Lift me lifted off the ground into the clouds. There's no power that can do that but God's power. And he's seated at the right hand of God, which is also fulfillment of prophecy, one, Psalm 110. Then he says, where he is far above, not, there's no competition with Jesus, not even close. He's far above any rule, any other authority, nobody has authority over Christ, any power, any dominion, there's no jurisdiction over Jesus. He's far above it. His name is above every name that has ever been named on this 
side of, of eternity, in time, and even outside of time, in another age to come, there is not a name that is greater than the name of Jesus. All things are under his feet. I heard Jack Graham, a pastor that I appreciate. <laughs> it was a, it's a preachery thing to say, but I like it. He said, man, if there's something above your head, it's under Jesus' feet. Is there something above your head that you don't understand or how you're going to figure out that's a financial, sinful, relational issue, whatever's going on in your heart, and it's above your head, and God, I don't know how I'm going I'm to do this. It's under his feet because everything is under his feet. He is over all things. And then lastly, I want to bring your attention to this. This is so amazing, friends. The last descriptor of God's power. Look at this. The very last one, almost as if in this crescendo, Paul's saving the best for last. And he says he's given Christ as head over all things to or for the church, which is his body. That's us, believers. And it says that we're the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's almost like he's, he's been so hyperbolic in all these descriptions. He's just over the top. Fifteen different descriptions of God's power. And at the end he goes, Christ is head over the body, which is the fullness of all in all. It's everything. I mean, you can't even, it's like all in all. Christ is all in all. In other words, every question that we have is answered in him. Every need that we have is met in him. Every fear, every wrong will be made right. He is all in all. But there's also this piece that Christ as head of the church, we're a part of Christ. There's a powerful lesson in this. and I, I'm trying to understand it myself. I want to give it to you. Listen. We are part of Christ. Just as a body has to have a head. If a body doesn't have a head, it's not a complete body. If somebody finds a head, they didn't find a whole body. They found a head. Right? The head has to be with the body for it to be complete. So Christ completes us as the church, as his body. We are complete in him. I love the conversation with Jesus and Saul on the road to Damascus when he says, why are you persecuting me? Remember that? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting these people I love? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? We're one and the same in that essence. Christ as head of his body, we are one body, right? Just as, in, in, sort of in the same sense that we see the bride has a bridegroom or a vine has branches, a shepherd has sheep, Christ has the church. And he is the head over it all. And he fills us. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God is in Jesus and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ fills us. Who fills all in all. You know, when I think about that, I don't know what you're facing this morning, what area of faith you need to be encouraged in, but when I say this, and it feels 
Sometimes it feels cheap unless I can prove it. And I think this morning the word proves it. And that is, what do you need? Jesus has it. What question do you have? He answers it. He is everything that you need. And we walk that out together as the body of Christ. We help each other understand that as the body of Christ. Even in heaven in this very moment, the angels are singing, according to Isaiah 6.3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Are you full this morning? Are you thankful? Are you prayerful? Do you know Christ intimately? The word Paul uses in the text is epinosis, which is, the word gnosis means knowledge in Greek. The word epinosis is an understanding knowledge, a deep, a full, a thorough knowledge. He uses this word so that we truly know Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, which is the gospel, that we know the riches that we have in Christ with the body and family of Christ, and that we know the power that we have access to in Christ. And where that power comes from, there is no power in heaven, on earth, in the universe. You, take, you look at the sun, you think about how much energy, how much power. The sun is just a little tiny star to God. It's my prayer this morning that we are thankful people, prayerful people, that we know him deeply and understand him thoroughly, that this power that he speaks of here, Paul wants us to know, is something we access and we use in our lives, and that in him, he fills all in all. He's over all things, and he fills all in all. That is the Jesus we serve. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace that you would allow us to take this text and try to, try to learn, try to understand, try to, to dig into Paul's heart. And clearly he wants us to see, God, that salvation in you is more than just a prayer. It's more than church attendance. It's more than church membership in a formal sense. It's more than religion. God, he's trying to show us and teach us that to know Christ is to have a true depth of understanding, a depth of knowledge of what the gospel is, a depth of understanding of the blessings we have in the family of God, and an understanding and access to the power of the most powerful. God, help us to know you. Help us to know you, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. Open our eyes. That's our prayer. God, my prayer, I know our elders' prayer for our people is, Jesus, would you open our eyes to know you? Open our eyes to know you. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the chance to worship you and just to begin to approach your throne of glory. We are so unworthy, and yet by your grace that you have lavished on us, we can approach your throne. How thankful and worshipful we are. 
We give you this morning. We give you our lives in Jesus' precious name. Amen.